So the first time that we taped this uh, podcast, Van, a lot had not happened yet. Um, mm. You know, in, in a moment, you all are going to hear our season one recap of The Wire, where we give out some awards, have a little fun. And we wanted to make sure that before you guys heard that episode, that we talked about some of the serious issues that have been going on in this country. And strange enough, we bring it kind of all back to uh, the wire. So we didn't want to appear as if we were being tone deaf or ignoring everything happening on the outside world. But we also realized that this is more of an entertainment vehicle. But given what the subject matter and the, and the what the subject matter is in the wire, I think we would be remiss if we didn't address at least a lot of the social unrest, social injustice, the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor address it in some way. So you guys didn't think we were somehow living in a cave somewhere and had no plans of acknowledging uh, everything happening. Although we do appreciate, because we took a, a little week off, we do appreciate people who were tweeting us and saying, hey, where's the wire? Um, you know, telling us they rely on it for entertainment value. And it was a good escape for them, which we certainly appreciate. But neither Van or I are the type of people who are going to ignore something as big and as massive as the movement taking place in this country. Now, here's how it all relates to the wire, um, other than just the subject matter. So. Uh, Wendell Pierce Van, um, there was a story by The Hollywood Reporter that came out that said, you know, as protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd continue around the country, there was uh, there's been a lot of conversation in Hollywood about continuing to depict police as these untouchable, glorified heroes and um, how most of the series about police officers or, you know, where they're the main characters, they do not get it right. They do not accurately depict police violence, nor their response in the community. And Wendell Pierce jumped in and uh, this was his quote or his uh, what he said when he retweeted and commented on The Hollywood Reporter putting this story out. Wendell said, how can anyone watch The Wire and the dysfunction of the police and the war on drugs and say that we were depicted as heroic? We demonstrated moral ambiguities and the pathology that leads to the abuses. Maybe you were reacting to how good people can be corrupted to do bad things. That was mm. Wendell's response. So you know, in light of everything that's happened now, um, Van, that what we've seen, the protests and everything else, um, do you agree with what Wendell said? And where does the wire, from a larger standpoint, kind of fit into everything that we're seeing now? Um, I couldn't agree with Wendell more. I think um, the wire is one of the, uh, the only shows that sort of it gives you a 360 panoramic view of policing. It shows you abuses in the police department. It shows you police brutality. It doesn't necessarily demonize the people that uh, commit these acts of police brutality. That's a, <clears throat> a different story. It leaves it up to the audience to make their own determination about what these men and women that belong to these police forces are doing. That is why the show finds such a diverse audience. That is also why the show is so challenging in uh, that very specific way. Now, in the moment that we're in right now, we're going to have to re-examine not just the structure of policing in America, its relationship with communities all over this country, but the deification of police in and of itself, like that article says. If something is viewed as pure, it is viewed as untainted. 
And when you have a bunch of shows that show police doing things for completely altruistic reasons, filled with bravery, filled with almost, you know, tear-inducing sort of drama, it does dehumanize and it does sort of turn a blind eye to some of the communities that don't have that view of their police. No one is asking for a full-on offensive on the nature of policing in America. We're asking for a realistic view. In order to change, we have to know what it is that we're dealing with, and we have to be able able to call out the cracks in the system. That's all Americans want. There are police officers that are probably listening to this that feel assailed by what's going on here the last couple of weeks. The only thing I will say to these men is that if you want us to believe in you, then give us something to believe in. And it's not on us to suspend our disbelief and just go with narratives that have been carved out over the past generation. It's up to the institutions that claim to serve citizens to prove that that is intentionally what they want to do. And I don't think that's a that's too far. That's that's too much to ask. So um, it is with that that we decided that we would take the time uh, t- to address what's going on. I've been um, both appalled by videos of the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and appalled at the inaction of officials to properly investigate and prosecute the death of our sister, Breonna Taylor. But I've also been hopeful in the uprisings and demonstrations that I've seen all over the world that we could be on the precipice of a real sea change in, in, in this country to where we might finally get this right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I guess for the wires piece of it, I think what Wendell Pierce said was right. I mean, they show the the cops as being not just flawed, um, flawed in a way that is still human, uh, but maybe the real victory in the entire series is that groups of people that often aren't depicted as human being addicts, dealers, people who are part of the drug war on drugs economy often Mm -hmm. are not depicted very humanly as if the things that happen to them are things that they deserve. And for that matter, um, even if it's something that's outside the law that they have every right to be punished that way, just because they're not quote unquote following the rules. And so I thought the wire does a really good job of breaking down how there are no good guys and bad guys. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of conscious choices that are made. Um, and they highlight, I, I, I don't use the word broken system because for it to be broke would imply that it ever worked or not that it ever worked, that it was ever good. Uh, the system's not broken. The system is actually working as it is designed. And what David Simon does, what The Wire does, is show you what that design is. And that design is often self-serving. The design is not for justice. The design is to keep people in power. Um, The design is to brutalize Black people and to um, continue to take siege over neighborhoods, over usually Black neighborhoods. And so it shows this very clearly how this system is set up uh, to not do what they tell you is supposed to do, which is to serve it, to protect it, um, and to um, provide a measure of public safety. And that's not what happens. There are several incidents uh, over the course of five seasons in The Wire where they show the ugliness of police brutality. And for that matter, the police culture that shows their default mechanism is to make excuses and cover for each other. The Wire does not hide from that at all. 
And mm -hmm. that's why I feel uh, kind of like something else that Wendell Pierce said as he was kind of responding to that critique of, of, of police shows and, and why he felt like The Wire didn't deserve to be lumped into it. You know, he says the critique here is that television seems to follow behind the current events of the day. I would ask that you consider that maybe The Wire was a precursor to the discussion that is mandatory now. It was an indicator, a warning light of the implosion we are feeling today. And he's mm. right. That's what it was. I mean, The Wire, the reason why it aged so well is because you could drop it. Uh, it came out in the early 2000s. You could have dropped it last year. You could have dropped it literally last week and every and not touched a single episode other than updating the fact that they were wearing oversized jogging suits mm. and uh, a lot of clothing uh, labels like Echo that didn't quite make it the same. Yes. Other than changing that, you wouldn't have to change a single bit of dialogue and it would be uh, very relevant today. I mean, like you, Van, I have been mortified, shocked, saddened um, for a period, I would say, especially that first week where everything just seemed to be unraveling and a lot of the unrest and the rebellion started. I felt a sense of hopelessness that I had frankly hadn't felt in a while. Mm. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I actually can pinpoint the last time I felt this way. And this uh, unfortunately relates to, to something you more, you experienced a lot closer than I did. And that was hurricane Katrina. Uh, yeah. Cause I remember watching the coverage of Katrina and seeing black people being abandoned and treated, being treated uh, as if they were not citizens of this country and feeling a sense of hopelessness and despair and all that just by watching that, knowing what the government was capable of, having always known, but like really seeing it play out, uh, it just hit different, as they say. And so I felt that way in the first few days of this, of right after George Floyd, and it had been a building feeling from Ahmaud Arbery through Breonna Taylor who the police officers involved in her murder still haven't been arrested, still haven't been charged. Just want to remind everybody. Um, so through that to the unfortunate pinnacle and peak being George Floyd. But then after we sort of came out of it a little bit, the officers uh, in the George Floyd case, they get arrested. The protests take a turn from being about, you know, rebellion, unrest, frustration to now being about how do we use this momentum to make some real change. And for the first time since all of this happened, since the first, since Rodney King, I'll take it all the way back. Mm. I feel like we are on the verge of actual reform. And I never thought I would see that in America. So much more hopeful today than I was previously. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think I see a, a, a diversity in the solidarity not just here in the country, but all over the world. I think Americans as a whole are sick of this and they are demanding more and better from their government. This is one thing that I did notice, keeping it to The Wire. In the first season of The Wire, which we covered, had a lot of fun covering it and we'll continue to cover the show. The show hasn't gone anywhere. We just took that week off to, to catch our breath and to really deal with some of the issues that are going on in this country. In the first season of The Wire, uh, a young black man is hit with a bottle, loses an eye. Bodie is beat up by the police. Bird is beat up by the police. Bubbles is beat up by the police, albeit on accident. Um, you have police brutality being a very central part of what happens in the West Baltimore Police Department. 
that's happens in the first season of the wire. You see that you see that from characters that you like, you see that from characters that you barely know. The subject of the investigations this time in season two of the wire are white and are in a different part of Baltimore. How many instances of police brutality have you seen in season two? Uh, None that involve white people. The only thing you see, and it's not even brutality, you see them getting harassed because of Valchek, right? Right. Which is different. Different. How many times have you seen them roll up on one of the guys in that situation when they're dealing with Horseface, when they're dealing with any of these people? You saw Horseface knows you. How many of... How much of that have you seen going on now? And continue watching the season with us. Stay with the stay with us. Um, we're like we're 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 covering season two now. Stay with us. We're about to get into season two. Like we we haven't discussed much of it, but up to this point, we're deep into it. We've been covering it. You haven't seen any of that. It's the difference in a segment of the population that is valued. In the section of the population, it doesn't mean anything that, yeah. that 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 you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, I don't know if Simon meant that, or maybe he did. I can't speak. Like I don't think no, no, no. Show- I'm I, I I don't think that they I don't think that there's any intention. I think that that's just the way it is. I think it would be very unrealistic to show uh, Nikki or Ziggy Sabaka being rolled down to the police office, uh, the police station, and having the hell beat out of them. Like, I don't think that that would be realistic, but I just put that in people's brains. I mean, listen, this 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 podcast is about the wire and it's going to stay about the wire, but we we could not say anything about it. So there you have it. That's it for me. <laughs> well, um, I know that uh, some of the people who listen to us on a regular basis um, certainly won't mind this deviation. And it, it wasn't like we tried to, we went of our way to try to res- relate it all back. You know, the wire is... It, it was so what made it so special and what made it into, you know, being the best television series of all time is is the relatability and the realness and the authenticity. And so the picture you get you see in The Wire is just a very good snapshot into what is, uh, you know, the criminal justice system in this country and how it's all intertwined and work together. And so I, I feel like the people who are Wire fans are um, much more understanding of the things that we're seeing right now because of how it relates so much to this show. So with that being said, uh, we will not deprive you of your entertainment any longer. Uh, Coming up next is our season one recap where we give out some awards. We have some laughs because I think we all need to feel a little bit lighter these days. So enjoy. And next episode, season two, uh, episode one, we're getting into the docs. See you then. See, the thing is, you only got to fuck up once. I'll be chalking you off one night. Man must have a code. Every now and then we visit the projects they live there. Kidding, we call this shit a war. Wars end. Be a little slow, be a little late. See the king, stay the king. Man, look the part, be the part, motherfucker. And how you ain't gonna never be slow, never be late. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the fuck it's gonna take you. It's forever, man. No shit like this, man. It's life. It's America, man. Hey, now. 
are finally here, man. We've already recapped the last episode of season one. And now we're going to do a whole season recap of everything that happened in season one, going over best moments, um, best performance. But we also have some NBA-driven categories, I should say. This is a season-ending spectacular gala. This is our version of the NBA awards or Mm -hmm. the NFL honors, except we don't have like Drake or Kevin Hart or anybody to host the show. You just got to, it's it's us. No one's cool. Right. It's just us. Yes, it's just us. Unfortunately, you Mm -hmm. have to be stuck with that. So what are some of your, your takeaways or observation about what this season meant? Mm. This season was a, I think I talked a little bit about it in the last episode. It was a dissection of capitalism and of the sort of opera of urban blight. Uh, in one of the most masterful ways ever done on television. This is the best first season in television history. It is the most thorough. The best first season in television history. I want to make sure I'm getting that. This first season, one of The Wire, is the best first season in television history. It is. And the reason why I say that is because when I judge things in terms of best or greatest, I judge them in through the scope of what they were trying to accomplish, um, how they delivered, and then the trails that they blazed. And if you look at The Wire season one, you have a, com- a completely unconventional form of storytelling. Um, and even when you listen to Simon talk about it, you have stories and, and television arts that were constructed by novelists and playwrights, not seasoned TV people. So it doesn't work in the same way. It has a lot of there's there's downtime in the show. The show broods a little bit. It stews a little bit. Um and be able to be able to take that unconventional approach to the storytelling with this many characters, uh, with this complicated um, a, a subject matter, and to be able to streamline it, finish up everybody's arc, uh, get get the viewer to a place where they understand a world that they had no idea about. I just don't know any first season that had more to accomplish that delivered. Now, if we're talking about Game of Thrones. Obviously, there was a lot going on there. I think the difference is when your mind is transported into a fantasy place, it becomes incumbent upon the viewer to believe whatever you see on the screen. So if you say there's dragons, there's dragons. If you say these people hated each other for thousands of years, they hated each other for thousands of years. If you say this, you say that, whatever whatever the rules of the world are, they're able to uh, sort of... Um, thrust those onto the viewer, dictate those. In The Wire, it's very much grounded in reality, but in a reality that we're not uh, initiated into. We don't know that much about this. And so we're both watching it from a, from a, from a drama point, uh, point of view and a documentary point of view. And to have that type of burden and for it to have been so effortless and the characters to have been so diverse and the motivations to have been so murky yet clear. Uh, I just can't think of another first season that tried this much and delivered uh, this uh, grandiosely. Yeah, you you judge it as you should by um, what they were trying to accomplish. I judge it off degree of difficulty. And when you think about the degree of difficulty of what The Wire was trying to accomplish in this first season under the guise of not knowing whether or not there would be a second season. Uh, They didn't find out that they were getting renewed for the second season until about six or seven episodes in. And and then they don't know what's going to happen beyond that. And they're telling this story 
as you just said, as if it were a novel as opposed to a TV show. So the degree of difficulty to do that is extremely high. And so to execute when you know you're telling a story in an unconventional way, to me, only gives support that this is the best first season of any television series. Um, certainly that I've seen. And maybe there's some that exist. Cause he, and look, I'm watching this right now. I've seen Game of Thrones. I've seen The Sopranos. Uh, and right now, currently, I'm actually watching Breaking Bad. Because right. the show that is commonly compared to being on the wires level is Breaking Bad. I hear that most often, probably more so than The Sopranos. A little bit of Game of Thrones, but really Breaking Bad is the one that I hear. And I can tell you, even though... I would say Breaking Bad maybe jumps out the gate a little bit quicker because this is Breaking Bad was told like a TV show <laughs> more so than The Wire was mm-hmm. um, that in terms of the storytelling device. I still would give uh, I still would definitely give The Wire an advantage and an edge there because it's harder, even though we don't know the world. The thing is, we know the world without knowing the world. Like right. we we don't have to live in Baltimore to not understand some of the problems that are in the inner city, especially if you're black. So not only did they have to deliver uh, this season from a, a storytelling standpoint, they had to deliver it from an authenticity standpoint. And that right. to me was where they separated themselves from other people or other shows that were trying to do something, you know, trying to do something similar. Like the Sopranos is building a mafia world, right. which is completely different. Right. And so there are going to be certain licenses they're able to take. And even though they're in New Jersey and they do use the city to some degree as a character, this show is also, The Wire is also trying to build in Baltimore, real Baltimore as a character and tell this authentic story from the standpoint of a novel. And that's three areas of difficulty that make this a much higher high and a much higher bar that they have to get through versus the other thing. And oh, by the way, they're trying to tell a cops and drug dealer story without it being a typical cops and drug dealer story. So they, they eschew all of the convention when it comes to storytelling, type of story, uh, characters, everything. They throw 50,000 characters at you once. Every TV rule, they broke it. That, and that's to me yeah. what makes this. That's why you can say definitively and confidently that this is the best first season of any show in history. Because if they miss any of those marks, if they fail to check any of those boxes, people are calling this an absolute failure. When you take a step back and you and you look even at The Sopranos or any of the other shows that we can compare it to, most of those shows we're, we're dealing with the point of view of one character who carries the entire drama forward, right? his problems, his issues, his stories, how what's going on in that character's world has ripple effects uh, outside of that world, right? What's going on with Walter White? What's going on with Tony Soprano? Boom, ripple effects outside. The Wire works the other way. It's the ripple effects of everything that's going on and how they affect different individual characters inside of that world. It's just a much more lofty undertaking in order to kind of get that to the finish line. Uh, And when you think about it, what you said earlier, I both agree and disagree with it, right? So I agree with the fact that we understand the mechanisms of how certain areas um, in urban communities rely on the drug trade economically, right? And what the cost of that is. I get the overarching sort of uh, 
mythos that or reality of that. I get that. I'm from South Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But it's the details in The Wire. It's so many things that I've learned even during this doing this podcast, right? I said one of the things I couldn't believe uh, uh, we love this show but moment was that the fiends would line up for the testers like that. And then I actually got pictures sent to me, a lot of pictures, too many pictures. I don't like looking at drug addicts, guys. Um, like it's, it's very, it's very, it's, it's defeating to your You're spirit. At I would like, I, porn? Is that I, would, I would like to, I would like to help people, but it's defeating to your spirit to see a line of drug, adult fiends about to get the testers. That's a real thing. So I think so much of it I knew, but a lot of it, every single area has its own specific issues, problems, and ecosystems. And you have to kind of give that to the show. The show puts that together in such a matter of fact way that it almost indoctrinates you into a different way of watching television. And that is the true uh, measure of, 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 of art to me. Like Pulp Fiction. When Pulp Fiction came out and you're, you're watching Pulp Fiction, it was movie making and storytelling in a way that I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen it done like that. Not just the fact that it was a non-circular story, but just the dialogue and the tempo and the rhythm and the look. and but it was familiar because the storytelling was so absolutely splendid. And The Wire is the same way in that way when you compare it to some of the other television shows that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and they also, um, and, and I understand that observation is that you're right. For as much as we know, we are familiar with the world of Baltimore or a place like that, but we don't know it. Mm. And even for as much as you and I, through our life experience, are familiar and know this world, even um, from my perspective of having recovering parents who are recovering addicts, there was still a lot about what I saw in there that I didn't realize was a part of that world. And we can trust the authentic authenticity of it because David Simon literally lived in that world. Yeah. And Ed Burns lived in that world. And even reading uh, as I did in All the Pieces Matter by Jonathan Abrams, even reading what the actors were doing to try to get character research. I mean, the fact that uh, Andre Royo was actually contemplating whether or not he should take a hit. Like, he was so authentic and real to the actual drug addicts in Baltimore that one of them rolled up on him and gave him a vial. Right. And he actually thought in his Crazy. trailer, which is which is nuts, that Crazy. maybe he should maybe he should shoot up. Just right. to see. Crazy. Just to see what is this attraction? What is this like? What kind of mood does it put me at? Yo, that's I'm, commitment. I'm glad Andre didn't do that, man. But thank God he did. Uh, <laughs> this this story might have been the, the the story of his acting career or, or his um, you know, his time on the wire might have been told in a completely different way. Right. If he if he decides to do that, so um, so yeah, I I would agree with your observation that that it's still even showing us this world. There's still so much of it where we're unfamiliar with, but the beauty of it, and they did this great in season one even though we know that there's more to come they interconnected the world yeah and it, there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, beauty and complication and frankly reality when they decide not to make anybody good or bad because yeah. see, most cop shows as we know the cops are the heroes they go above and beyond and when they even when they break the law we have to buy that they're breaking the law for such a good reason. It's okay if they're infringing on civil liberties. A little police brutality is okay as long right. as 
like on SVU, Law and Order SVU, as long as a pedophile or a rapist winds up in jail. Like that's just okay. And that's just part of the job. And they're even heroic in doing that. And in this, we see the police being incompetent. We see, um, you know, them assaulting people for no fucking reason mm -hmm. other than they're having a bad day or yeah. they just don't like this person or they somehow have their authority challenged and they just don't like it. And so they're not, they're not positioning, he's not positioning the cops as, as being um, deities as we often see in police drama. And it's not a police drama, nor is he painting every drug dealer or every addict as being this awful person who is not deserving of being uh, humane or seeing through the prism of, of, of somebody who's humane and expressing a certain humanity. He very carefully and intelligently crafts a world around them that is almost like the prison that they're headed to. Right. right. And so that's, there's a certain level of brilliance in that. So I would, I agree with you that in terms of everything that the wire had to do, that they had to get right for them to get all those things right. And, and still leave you with this incredible foundation for the rest of the series. Um, you know, gold star for David Simon and Ed Burns. And yeah. I think they achieved everything that they set out to be. Um, yep. With that being said, let's get to some awards, to some hey, categories, to some best. Yes. Fake drum roll, please, I guess. And fake yeah. award show music. I feel like we should build up to who is the MVP of the season. We can't start at MVP. No, well, right? sorry, MVP. We can't. That's, not, we can't. This, like the, that's the last award. That's the that's last the, award. That's the mama, you, the real MVP. Shout out to KD. That's the, that's the last award. You start off with something that nobody cares about, like Walter Payton Man of the Year. Or like when we're watching the SEC games and they show us who the academic All-Americans are. I don't give a <laughs> damn about damn. no academic All-American. Show me somebody who's running that rock. All right, let's go. All right. Th that makes me feel really bad about this award. Um, okay. <laughs> of course. All right. So we'll we'll start with uh, an important, but not maybe the MVP type of award. Obviously, one of the things that this season, the, the very first episode was about chain of command, right? Yeah. That was, it started, and that was a constant theme throughout this entire season one, was chain of command, authority. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I think we should start with who was the best boss in season one. Easy. Easy? Cedric Daniels. I knew you would probably say that. It's, it, 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 to me, he's the only good boss in the entire thing. I would say Cedric Daniels, and the reason why I would say Cedric Daniels, uh, and really, you know what the crazy thing is? It's either Cedric Daniels or D'Angelo. <laughs> but oh, uh, but I'm gonna go with Daniels. The reason why I'm gonna go with Daniels is because Daniels has uh the reason why he's the best boss, not just in season one of the wire, but I'm gonna say the best boss in the entire thing. Um uh, no, he has a he has a challenger. I will bring that up when that time comes. He has a challenger. Uh, okay, cool. A legitimate challenger. Okay, I, but Daniels is one of the only. He's the quintessential boss because he's really not a boss. He's a leader, and the reason why he's a leader is because he's willing to get right in there with his troops and do the work with them. You saw his adherence to chain of command, um, and he stays on that, and he tries to operate within the parameters of that. However, when it becomes obvious that uh, doing the job is going to require him to make some moves that he wouldn't have made, he does that along with his troops. 
So he's pliable. You don't want bosses to be rigid. You don't want them to be hanging over your head and like, ah, da, 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 da. you want bosses to be pliable. You want them to be elastic so that they stretch, but not to where they break. And that's Cedric Daniels. He stretches, he changes, he changes when he sees the case has legs. He cares about the job um, and he doesn't let his ego get in the way of mission accomplishment. And that's the kind of boss I want to have. His best quality is his worst quality. His best quality is that he looks out for his guys no matter what. But that's also his worst quality because that allows kind of the system to continue to function the way that it is. The fact that like somebody like her shouldn't be on the police force flat out, like should not be there. But I disagree. You disagree? Yeah, I disagree. I think that the wire is worthless. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I think that the wire has convinced me that you need some hurts. Like, like, I mean, like, listen. He's let's, a let's, moron, man. Let, a let's, moron. Let's do, let's do this. Okay, so every single police character in The Wire, really besides McNulty and Bunk, is, are, are at one time or another, like, they just, the police brutality is shocking. Even Daniels was involved in some police brutality. Even, there, even Kima was involved. K- in Kima, yeah. they've all, they all were involved. Daniels and them, they beat the hell out of Bird. There's police brutality in the wire. So police brutality aside with Herc and Carr, I think you need guys like Herc who are overzealous, who are, you just need a couple of numbskulls to go out there and do the numbskull shit. A couple of guys, almost like human sandbags, you could just throw around. Like the show, that's how good the show is. The show convinced me that a good for nothing cop is actually good for something if the bosses are competent enough to use him in the right way. But but that was my issue with Herc, is that he had no quality. Like, okay, Prez, for example, clearly unfit for the street, right? That's not his thing. But they found a lane for him in that he's he's a thinking cop. So he loves pouring, he loves the minutia. And you find somebody and you put them on something like campaign finance records, which they start to do with him, or you have him figuring out pager codes. He proved to be very valuable despite the fact he's unfit for the street. Totally get that. Even Carver, who is his police brutality brother, brother in crime, partner in crime, rather, he even has a leadership quality. A, he has a leadership quality about him that makes him useful. What right. the fuck does Herc have? Herc has nothing. He can't think. He can bear like he's a mouth breather. Like there's just nothing about him that you can use. They gotta be dudes that can crack heads. All right. Carver can crack heads. What the fuck can he do? He's not scared. He's not scared. Oh, he's not scared, man. He's not scared. He's not scared of shit. He's got, he's that young, dumb, full of cum type of guy that you can put out there. And just go and, and and make him task, right? You just need some guys that you can just sit on something and tell them to go do something and they ain't shook. They ain't scared of it, right? They like, they'll go out there and get it done. And that's kind of a thing with him. He never, ever hesitates, right? He never hesitates. Now, he's never, like, to your point, he's never right, you know? But, like, he's never right, but he never hesitates. But anyway, that's okay. me defending him. All right, all right. So your, your best boss is Daniels. Very yes. obvious choice. But let yeah. me give you somebody else, because as I was going through these categories and, and filling out my own personal ballot, I just thought that 
the way, at least the way I feel uh, it out the first time, that it was too heavily slighted toward the police, right? Right. And I was like, you know what? Let, let me let me change my thinking. Let me think outside the box. You know who the best boss in this is in season one? It's fucking Avon. That's the best boss because Avon has mm-hmm. a organization that is disciplined, that is on task. And granted, obviously things didn't go right because of of where mm-hmm. it ended. But all those mistakes were not necessarily mistakes that Avon himself made. He put the system in. He was right. Belichickian with that shit. Right. He gave you the system. Right. And he filled in, allegedly, I guess it's Tom Brady, I guess it's Stringer. I don't know. Whatever. But that's beside <laughs> the point. Right. But Stringer still accomplished what needed to be accomplished. He had the system in place. My man making a million dollars a fucking day? Right. Hello? Right. That's a hell of a prolific ass system. Mm-hmm. Evading and outsmarting the police basically at every turn. If not for the help of technology, they probably never catch this cat. They barely, if not for the superhuman brain of Lester Freeman, they didn't even know what the fuck he looked like. That's yeah. a boss. Yeah, He had okay. the system in place. It's not his fault that the players sometimes couldn't execute, execute rather the game plan. But Avon okay. was on it. So I'm going to shred this now. Uh-oh. And so, and so, and so, a couple of things. Number one, Minolte did know, uh, realize that Avon was doing what he did, and that's kind of what started. Secondly, how can you be a good boss when one, two, three? So we got little man, Wallace, Orlando, uh, one of the dancers. Like your employees are getting murdered uh, by you. Uh, like it's very hard. Okay, to see, Orlando was uh, Orlando got himself murdered. He got like, himself was, murdered. He got himself he, murdered. He, he got himself that was murdered. Necessary. But still, though, it's hard to be a good boss. It's hard to for me to be like, yeah, man, you know, you're, you're a real good boss. When I know that you put one in my dome, like they he killed a bunch of his employees. A leader has to hold people accountable. Man. Oh yeah, like, okay, you know, okay, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> well, with Daniels. Nobody had to die. Daniels was willing to get 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 down for his people. They ordered the death. He's now a good boss of a sixteen year old kid, Jamel. This is very controversial. Was Wallace it, snitching? This is your yes. not at the, not the, at the time that he was killed. Not at the time that he was no, killed. No, but he had, he had changed his. But he, he had changed his mind. Though. He had changed you his mind. Either you a snitch or you not a snitch. You can't halfway snitch. He had oh, already nah. told him. You talk about the old stuff. Like Takashi Six Nine was out here today, uh, doing all kinds of shit. I guess. Uh, but this is, you know, later. I guess snitching still matters, or maybe it don't matter. Maybe it does matter. It mattered when I was growing up. Maybe it doesn't matter now. But I'll say this. Avon is a, he's the most likable boss. I don't think he's the best boss. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Look, your boy Daniels, it's some holes in his game, too. Like I said, he's he's all good. The fact that he would cover for three idiots that went to the projects to start some shit at 2 o'clock in the morning for no reason. All right. At that point, none of them had proved their worth. Right. And Prez, by the way, uh, half blinded somebody with yeah. his dumb ass. He almost <laughs> he almost messed around and something horrible could have happened when his gun, when he accidentally shot his gun in the in the very first introduction that we get to him. So, I mean, he had to overcome a lot of stupidity, which is what a good boss, good boss does. Same thing with Avon. He had to overcome a lot of stupidity within his own organization in order to keep the Barksdale empire afloat. I by, mean, yeah, but 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 by episode six, almost maybe before that, the Barksdale organization is almost in complete disarray. 
By, by the way, I'm not blaming Avon. I love Avon. I think Avon is dope. I'm just saying, I think, I would even say that Prop Joe is a better boss than Avon is. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Avon is the most gentlemanly gangster, one, my favorite gangster in wire history. Uh, this next category to me was a very deep field. Who would you say was the worst boss? Oh, that's a deep field. That was a deep field. Um, that's tough. <laughs> Worst boss, uh, like I, 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 I have a couple of thoughts on this, but I went with Landsman, and the reason why I'll go with Landsman, White Steven from Django, yes, right? The, <laughs> the reason why I, I went with Landsman is just because we only see Landsman do one thing almost right uh, in the entire season. And that's when he's helping them hunt for Kima's killers. Landsman is sniveling. He's a sycophant. He is just... It, it, the boss is like Landsman to me. Um, not fun guy. Fun guy to have on the show. Comic relief. But a do-nothing boss. There's nothing worse in this world. You can have do-nothing employees. But if you have a do-nothing boss, then that to me is the worst possible thing you can have. And I think that's what Landsman is. Even all of the other bosses, they had agendas. Burrell had agendas. Um, uh, Burrell had an agenda. Rawls had an agenda. Uh, Phelan, who I guess is kind of a boss, had an agenda. All of these other guys have agendas. Um, Stringer has an agenda. Avon has an agenda. D'Angelo has an agenda. But Landsman is just uh, nothing. He just doesn't do anything. He's just there to suck up to Raw. So I would say he was the worst boss. No, he was definitely in my first three thoughts of who would be worst boss because he is literally useless. Like his only job is to kiss Rawls' ass. Right. And, and that's it. Like he, there was, and, and I wouldn't even give him credit for that half a moment of police work that he did because he was in the company of a lot of other police that were, they could have very easily have been on the scene. He right. just was a little bit more pissed off because it happened to one of his own. And even worse than a do-nothing boss is a boss that gets in your way. See, I don't right. mind if you're incompetent, but don't get in my way. And mm. he constantly was getting in the way of actual good police uh, work with his utter bullshit. So right. he's the worst. I, But I'll go with a name you already mentioned or you just mentioned. It's Burrell, man. Burrell is lazy, incompetent, and a kiss ass. And right. the thing is, at least with Rawls, we saw... When Kima was shot, we saw where Rawls maybe stepped used up. to be, where he stepped up. And maybe th there was a time where he was that kind of boss all the time. But right. he got sucked into career advancement. He's trying to get ahead. He does what needs to, you know, he does what needs to be doing. And you will see, I think, maybe not a glimpse that was as good as the one we got with this one. But you will see later on in the series other glimpses of where as long as he has support as long as the shit doesn't fall on him, I think Rawls is okay with making a good decision. Mm -hmm. I think Burrell, no matter what, is always going to be self-serving, lazy, and incompetent. That's just mm -hmm. who he is. I mean, at least Rawls can kind of police. Burrell, where? Like, you mm -hmm. never saw him police not one time in this season or any other. All he did was get in people's way and further his own agenda, much to the detriment of actually solving murders, of mm -hmm. actually doing things that would frankly benefit his career yeah. but because he was more about kissing ass and about you know career advancement and standing in the good graces of those above him you just never saw it
He's the he, fucking worst. So he he actually is the cop that Daniels was telling Carver not to be. Yes. Comes a day you're gonna have to decide whether it's about you or about the work. And said if you make it about the bullshit, it'll be about that. If you make it about the job, it'll be about that. He's the cop that Daniels was telling Carver not to be. Now, before we move off Burrell, I have to inject a little controversy into the podcast. I love that choice, but there's been something that's been brought over brought up over and over again regarding Burrell, and we have to discuss it now. And that's your pronou- your pronunciation of Burrell. Oh. Burrell. Oh, oh, people have, this has been, I saved it to this episode. You saved it. Why did you know I was going to pick him? <laughs> no, I, I didn't, but I, I was going to bring it up. People have been telling me that it's Burrell and not Burrell. You say Burrell like the sanitizer, like Burrell as in Purell. And they, I don't know why, Burrell? Jamel, they more mad about that than some of the other big Twitter moments that you've had. People hit me up, hey man, can you tell her that it's, I'm like, no. I'm like, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter. No, nah, dog. I'm, I'm from Baltimore and I eat lake trout and a pit beef tater sandwich and and I, I tell her it's Burrell. So I just, they told me to tell you that Burrell. sister. So I'm telling Not you that Burrell. it's Burrell. Burrell. Not Burrell. But you know what? Fuck it. Keep on with the Burrell shit. Keep, <laughs> to keep doing people, it your way. To anyway. Who gives a fuck? He didn't deserve his name <laughs> to pronounce right. right. But I'm glad you gave me that note. I can't promise I'll be perfect with it, but right. I will try not to pronounce it like Purell. 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 No Purell. 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 See, now it's stuck in my head, and now I'm probably going to do it. <laughs> um, all right. So moving on to another best and worst. Who was the best couple on this show? Ooh, uh, Bubbles and Johnny. <laughs> Bubbles and Johnny. Easy work. Dude, that, that, that is so fucking dysfunctional. Easy work. It's, they're, the best, they're the best couple. They, to me... The crackhead, Batman, and Robin. The crackhead, Batman, and Robin. To me, they are the most devoted to one another. They are the ones that, 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 like, they're the most accepting of one another Uh, in this situation. I mean, in in, in relationships, there's very often one person who drags the other person down, and you know that I think Johnny is the person that drags Bubbles down. But to me, as far as an emotional connection that lasts throughout the entire thing, they're the most. Obviously... Kim and her girl would be kind of up there too, but there's a little bit of something different there. No, there's you, a little... you start smelling the trouble for sure. Yeah, yeah, you're smelling yeah. this little judginess, a little whatever. Bubbles and Johnny, to me, that's kind of the most, you, you see the love. They are really tethered, like symbiotic and heroin together. By the way, it's heroin, not crack. We always say crack. Oh yeah, you're right. I'm we sorry, they're be... the heroin. The heroin. heroin. But crack just sounds better though. Yeah, I mean, it's um, a better ring to it, right? Uh, but yeah, so yeah, so uh, I would say to me, it's Bubbles and Johnny. Bubbles and Johnny, uh, you united in heroin and yellow caps and red caps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a bond yep. hard to break. Right. Uh, well, as touching as that was, and as much as that made me believe in real love, the obvious answer is clearly Chardine and Lester. Mm-hmm. It's clearly that. It's clearly those two. That courtship that we get. Mm-hmm. You know, Lester, old head, dropping that old man game on oh, her. Oh, shit, yeah. Knowing how she take her coffee. Right, You know, yeah. putting that game down. Mm-hmm. You know, as, uh, giving Sidner the stiff arm. He's trying right. to weasel up in there. Lester was like, I got this. Mm-hmm. Me and my figurines. We got this. Yeah. He offering yeah. his home, offering shelter, protection, yeah. things women want, stability. Right? Mm-hmm. Got her off the pole, man. Got her yeah. off the pole. Got off the post, smelling, on, like, smelling like Stetson the whole time. 
fixed her Still vision, up. though. Fixed, fixed her, her vision. vision. Yeah, it gave, gave her gave her purpose. Now, I get gave that. her purpose. I, I get that brief briefer than Johnny and Bubbles, but I can feel you on that. I yeah, I mean, I, I know that they don't have as 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 much of a, a long standing relationship as Bubbles and Johnny, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I'm I'm a newlywed, so I believe in fresh love, right? Now. I feel you. I'm you with see what it. I'm saying. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, the inverse of that. Who was the worst couple? Again, a deep field. <laughs> worst couple. Now, there are a couple of people up there that you can go with. I know that I'm going with some easy answers, but obviously to me, the worst couple. I mean, look, uh, Perlman and McNulty are combustible. Right. That's terrible. Um, obviously, that's a very I – McNulty mean, and his wife. Really, you could say that worst couple – Told you couple, it was a deep field. You, you could say that – the worst couple is McNulty and anybody. Uh, <laughs> really, you could say that. But to me, um, to me, it's uh, D'Angelo and Donetta. She's just... <laughs> that was pretty obvious, huh? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. She's just sucking the life out of my boy. Sucking the life out of him. One of the most frustrating scenes to watch in Wire history is the scene where he's lost Chardin. Um, D'Angelo has. He's back with Donetta. And... He's standing there while she is just reaming this man about his furniture and his bedroom set and all of this stuff like this. And he, you can just tell he is fucking over it. That plus the disconnect at the restaurant is just a completely dysfunctional relationship. And it's also the relationship that is pulling him back to tether him into a world that he doesn't want to be in. Very rarely uh, is the person that you're with representative of everything you don't want to be. And that is kind of what's going on in this particular relationship. So I think it's the worst. No, that that's a strong candidate. And I kept yeah. coming back to them just because uh, of the way that, you know, she stressed him out. And she just generally, she just didn't want him to be better. Like, yeah. she, just, she wanted to keep him in the same place. She didn't want him to be him. No. Yeah. And yeah. on top of that, which is how Chardin, yeah. we got up in there because yep. she was more relatable to him. And more importantly, like, she wanted something better than what he had like she wanted him to be better than what he already was and i think donetta was totally fine with him staying the same yeah and being exactly who he uh was that being said equally talk about sucking the life out of you daniels and his wife man like pretty bad <laughs> daniels and his wife marla daniels marla daniels right and and at first it, it, it's one of those things that kind of it's a relationship that starts off in an okay place like He's got this wife, comes home at the end of the day. They open a bottle of wine. They have a normal dinner. She is very invested in his career, wants to see him succeed. On the face of it, seemingly all good things and all good Mm -hmm. traits a spouse should have. But she's terrible. I mean, she's terrible because he has, especially toward the end of the season where Daniel starts to awaken and he realizes that he just can't be about bootlicking this whole time. Like, he's got to be about the work. He's got to be about helping... um, not just not just aiding justice and helping justice get achieved, but he's got to be about raising better leaders than the leaders he came up under. Right. And her default mode is basically when she tells him, you know, uh, you can't basically lose if you never play. Right. Which is terrible right. advice. She's basically mm-hmm. she's telling him to stay uninvolved, uh, to keep his head down to be a company man. Every time that he has any kind of epiphany, she is there to tell him, no, but you need to be a company man. So yeah. she's the worst because she not only she may support his dream, but she only supports his his dream 
if it's done in a way that makes her comfortable. She never wants them to be uncomfortable or disruptive. Now, maybe this is part of uh, maybe part of the reason that is, is because she saw what he went through on the come up and about and she wants him to play it safer now. But now she just. She just asking him to coon his way to the top, and I just can't get down mm, with that. I'm with it. Yeah, so she, those two, uh, definitely the worst uh, couple. All right, moving on. Now we're starting to get in the thick of some of the major um, awards here. So what was the best quote of this season? And there's a lot of choices to be made with this one because I feel like every episode, it has 500 things I could repeat that they all said. I could go with the obvious one, but I'm not going to. No. And it's not come at the king, you bet not miss. That's a warning. I get it. That's one of the probably, it's probably the most famous wire quote uh, ever. I'm going to use another one with the same term in it. Almost the theme of this entire season is the king stay the king. All right. What about them little bald-headed bitches right there? All right. These right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. They move like this, one space forward only, except when they fight. And it's like, like this. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king stay the king, all right? Everything stay who he is, except for the pawns. And for pawn, made it all the way down to the other dude's side, you get to be queen. I'm saying the reason why I say the king stay the king is because when you think about it, that has such a larger meaning in the wire universe. That that means what that actually means is that, you know, we think that the king is a person. We think that they're talking about Avon. We think that they're talking about whoever. Really, the king is the system. The king is the game. Uh, and that is even at the end of the season, what we see. Um, despite all of the actions of the police department all of the reactions of the Barstow organization in the last scene, the second to last scene, we see that things are moving just the way they were before. Money is king and the king stay the king, right? Um, so when I think about uh, things that were said that really resonate with me um, is that, you know, Bodhi is trying to figure out this world and how he's going to move up through it and how he's going to get to the top and explain to someone that, you winning this game is not about becoming the king, but about surviving the game itself to me is one of the most poignant moments in season one. Um, no, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense because it is a little more broad than come at the king. Um, you best not miss, mm-hmm. uh, which is very direct and kind of narrow in, uh, in this intention uh, because, you know, uh, uh, I think King saying the king that just applies to so many of the systems that we see in the, in the wire uh, mm-hmm. that they expose that, even throughout best efforts and even people when they are well-intentioned, it still kind of stays the same. It gets to that sameness that I think authentic hopelessness that needs to be a part of the series in, the, in order for it to have become, you know, kind of the greatest series ever. So that's a great line for me, especially as it relates, I'll go a little more narrow, especially as it relates to season one. It's where's Wallace? Where's the boy? Where he at stream? Right. Where's Wallace at? Where's the boy, String? D'Angelo, shut your mouth. Where's Wallace? That's all I want to know. Kid, you better think. Where the fuck is Wallace? 
Huh? String. String. Look at me. Look at me! Where the fuck is Wallace? Huh? Don't want this Payless win, motherfucker, representing me. I'm gonna get my own man. All right? It's that one because I think Wallace's death, his murder, was probably uh, the most heartfelt. Uh, In many ways, shocking may not be the word, but it's the one that cut the deepest. And it's only one other one that we'll get to later on that I think is on the same level. And I'd still maybe rank Wallace's higher than that one. But this is the one where a lot of the things that happen in the series um, or in the season, rather, kind of all tied together. The futility of it all, what it cost, what it was really costing people. All of that is represented in Wallace's death. And. D'Angelo, who's become super invested in Wallace because he sees so much of himself in Wallace. It, it was also a, a, a turning point for him because in that moment, that's when he turned against the Barksdales. Right. That's when he did it because mm-hmm. that was, he had had enough. He had seen, you know, a, a young lady overdose um, and nobody gave a fuck. He had saw, he'd seen, uh, you know, a, a witness uh, murdered after he had already gotten off. He had seen all these egregious, horrible things that, this organization he's a part of had committed, but that was the one where he said, you know what? That's I'm out. I'm right. done. Yeah. No more. And so um, that line, uh, and of course it's one of the iconic lines that, that, you know, people kind of say, but uh, that was the line that I think resonated the most with me throughout this first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm putting this one, man, this is this next category. This is me throwing you a oop, dude. You pretty tall dude. And you hoop for real. So Yo. this is me throwing you the oop. Uh-huh. A lot of sex talk in The Wire, be it by the cops, be it by a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. What was the most inappropriate line of season one? Well, I have to talk about my boy Poot. We're supposed to turn off the tap. And the crass. Ladies man. Ladies man, the crass and ridiculous glazed donut line. Okay. They're on the wire. They're listening to Poot. He's talking to a lady friend of his. Uh, he tells his lady friend what he's going to do to all three hoes. And he says he's going to make her look like a glazed donut. You know he's supposed to shut like a glazed donut. You know that? Listen. You know, I've been doing my thing out here for a long time. I just can't think of more, something... Like it's just it's it, so me, graphic. It is it's so graphic to me. It's like it's like I wonder what kind of game is being run down there in Baltimore. Is that the thing, girl? He told me he gonna make me look like a glazed donut. I cannot on, on wait to poop. Yeah, on a public <laughs> payphone. I can't wait to poop. Get over here to make me look like a glazed donut. I like so look. A lot of stuff happened in this. A, a lot of stuff gets said, but that one was. I was like, God, you know, it, it's weird because like I'm a. 40-year-old man, and it made me uncomfortable. I'm like, yo, dog, what you talking about, man? It's like, what, what is this? Like, so that that is that 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 is easily my answer right there. Come on, Pooh. Yeah, and I and I hope it wasn't at the time some young men who are, you know, this is 2001, 2002. I hope some young man didn't see that and say, you know what? The next time I'm sweet talking one. Yo, this glazed donut in there. Try tell to see her, how that uh, tell her you're gonna make her look like a glazed donut, homie. You in there. Come on, man. Nah, nah, that, he led the youth astray with that one. Uh, most inappropriate <laughs> line I heard. Inappropriate as an inappropriate and funny, I guess you could say. Was when Phelan told McNulty and talking about Rhonda, I would love to throw a fuck into her. Oh, I love that. Jesus. I would love to throw a fuck into her. Throw a fuck? Yeah. 
Like oh, I like that. Like but I throw like it? That. I like that though. Yeah. How does that work? That seems it's, physically sort of impossible. But he's gonna throw. I, I like it though. He's like, I love that he's he's talking about. He just wants to give his whole body to Ronda. You just nasty. throw it into her. Yeah. Like, ah. Not sexy, <laughs> by the way. Gotcha. I think most 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 women would probably uh, agree with me. Another category that uh, we did in every single show. That is our next one because it's you know in this buildup, it's got to be one that stood out more than the others. What was the file this away for later? moment of this first season Ooh, there were so so many many good ones that you can kind of look to in terms of file this away for later moments um you know for me personally now when i was thinking about this i looked at it two ways i was thinking what's the best file this away later moment for later seasons in like from that like in, in number one that is that kind of uh, uh plays itself out over the course of of uh of um of later seasons and i stopped looking at it that way because there are not very many of them like that and also we're talking about season one and there's a very specific ecosystem to season one and it should kind of stay into season one um there are better fathers away moments uh for me in the season than this one but I still think that the moment that you talk about is the most seminal moment of the season, which is Wallace's death. It gets foreshadowed when Bodie throws the bottle at him. Easy to see why niggas come around here stealing our shit. Yo, you know what? You know what, nigga? What? When I go back and I look at that, it says two things. Number one, um, Wallace reacted with no anger when that happened, right? Uh, Wallace screamed out in pain. And then number two, Bodie flipped so quickly when he saw that the business was being compromised. So every time I watch that scene, I go, this was in Bodie that whole time. The, the, someone who would kill or hurt one of his friends, uh, cut him on his ear. This was, this was in Bodie the entire time. So um, even though there are probably more direct fathers away later moments, when I had my list, I looked at the ones that meant the most to me in terms of the characters, uh, and that's the one for me. No, that's a that's a good one, and and mine is is kind of in the same neighborhood as that one, but I just advanced it a little further because what I looked at is I also tried to look at anything that might have reverberated past the first season, but I also looked at what set off a chain reaction of things that really was baked into this season one. And to me, it's when when Wallace told D'Angelo he spotted Brandon. The jump-off yeah. moment, you file that away because of what happens as a result yeah. of, him, of him telling him that. So that leads to Wallace getting on drugs, which I have to say I did not see coming the first mm-hmm. time I saw this. Then Wallace snitching, Wallace ultimately being killed. Right. So it all goes back to to that. And because he followed a directive and was rewarded for that, the assumption is that everything's going to be okay because he did what he was told. Spotted Omar's lover, told uh, his direct supervisor, direct supervisor kicks it up the chain. That should be it for Wallace. But Mm -hmm. just doing that messed him up so much mentally and then later became an instrument in his own death. It was like, wow, that was a pretty big kind of file this uh, away for later moment because it wasn't it wasn't even played up in that episode 
like a big thing. It just it was played up as a as a detail of something that yeah. happened. Mm-hmm. And so who knew at that moment that it would just lead to all of these different things happening the rest of the season. Um, but there were plenty of others. I mean, another one I honestly thought about naming was when Lester, as we we're talking about looking at what happens uh, beyond just uh, this season, I mean, when Lester noticed that newspaper article about the $250 million being poured into downtown renovation, because mm-hmm. that will lay the groundwork in a major way for season three. Yeah. Or the, Bubbles going to his first meeting. Yes, or you know, all, going to his all, first meeting. Like yeah. all those things are things that I consider when I think about the trajectory of characters um, and kind of uh, the way the characters grow and evolve over the course uh, of the show. Um, but I still came to the decision I came to. I'm sick of doing it. Yeah, the only one I thought, the, the, the one I thought you might pick is when Johnny got beat up. Mm. I thought you might pick that one because yeah. that did set into motion kind of a lot of things. Yeah. You know, that happened and, and your boy Bubbles becoming the Tony Stark of stitches. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Now we start moving into, into some more robust categories. And, um, you know, this is where our NBA categories kind of come in. Um, rookie of the year. Who was rookie of the year? Prez Belusky. Mm. It's kind of hard not for it to be him. Yeah. Prez Belusky. Prez Belusky is the guy who exploded onto the scene. You watch his rookie development, right? He wasn't a Shaq type rookie of the year where it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to be the Rookie of the Year. He was more like a Michael Carter-Williams Rookie of the Year to where it's not like it was a crazy, crazy field, and he just got better kind of over the course of the season to where at the end of it, you go, okay, this guy has like a usable skill set. Might never be a superstar. Probably won't ever be a superstar. But he's got a usable skill set there. And it's not like a, it's not even like a Chris Paul Rookie of the Year. Or even a John Morant rookie of the year. But it's it, it's definitely one of those, hey, we got to give it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> That's messed up, man. <laughs> right. That's um, what I got. Right. Uh, so I have one that I would say would remind people a little bit of when Ben Simmons won rookie of the year. Because there were a lot of people saying, should he really be qualified to win rookie of the year? Because he had to, you know, sit out some significant time, was able to come back. You know, he he had a year in the NBA under his belt already. The Blake Griffin he, syndrome. Yes, even though he hadn't played, but yeah. there was a lot of people saying, well, is this really fair for him to win that? So with that in mind, Bodie is my rookie of the year. And Interesting. even though Bodie technically didn't start drug dealing with D'Angelo, but he, you could say, was on an injured season with the previous moron that they had running the pit. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was something uh, to that. And when you look at where Bodie started to where he, I mean, when he was still kind of new. He, I mean, he was very new and fresh and all of this because D'Angelo mm-hmm. was constantly having to school him too. To by the time we get to the end, you know, he, he knows this. Map. Sh- yep. He, know, he put himself on the back map and he knows this shit like the back of his hand. Mm-hmm. And it says a lot that Stringer, when it came time to deal with Wallace, came to Bodie. And that's right. when he knew uh, that he had a soldier on his hand, which is, if you want to read it that way, that's also a file this away for later moment because of how you see Bodie progress from season two on. So, um, you know, he showed a lot of promise, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though he did have a bad game because let us not forget that when it came time to pull the trigger on Wallace, he hesitated. He did. He did. He hesitated. So he had a bad game, you know, 
Um, that was the one time where he didn't score in double digits. But his willingness to learn, breaking out of a juvenile facility, taking all them ass whoopings from the cops, hell, even the crazy decision to fire on an old police officer, Bodie ha- is committed. His level of commitment is stronger than anyone else's in that crew. Very true. Like, no question. So Very true. For that, he deserves uh, Rookie of the Year. Uh, now on to Sixth Man of the Year. Mm-hmm. A good six man. Yeah. Uh, somebody <laughs> think about what the qualities of a six man. Somebody who's not in the rotation, the starter rotation, but you can just give them the ball and let them go cook. Let them go get you some buckets. You know what I mean? Like you run them. Sometimes you run them with the first unit. Sometimes you run them with the uh, with the with the second unit. The first unit, they're more of a role player. Second unit, they just go out there. I think when I think of six man, I think of Lou Will. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Jamal Crawford. Right? Jamal Crawford. Just yeah. give him the ball and let him cook when they're with the second string. That's why the six man of the year is D'Angelo Barstow, who is consistently around the second string of the uh the 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 Barstow organization. Um, he plays his role when he's with the first string. When he's around Weebay and and um and Stinkum and 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 his uncle and Stringer, he plays his role, plays it well. But when you get him with that second string, he had the tower humming, he had the pit humming, um, had some issues. Uh, you know, was it was on and off the DL. Uh, but but still though, when I think I got guys that you want, he's he really is the head of the second string of the Barksdale organization. So I, I give it to D'Angelo. I mean, he did turn the pit around. I mean, he, yeah. got, he got everybody in lockstep. He, I mean, he, they were producing so well, even got a raise. Yep. So he certainly got his reward. But it comes down to a, a word that you mentioned a moment ago, role. The people yeah. who know their role, accept their role, embrace their role, try to do that role better than anybody else ever had. Mm. That's why Lou Williams, when it's all said and done, they might as well name the damn award after him, either him or Jamal Crawford, right? Yeah, he's going to be one of the best ever. One of the best of all time. A lot Mm -hmm. of people become six men, um, not by their own choice. And certainly a lot of them don't desire to stay there. But Lou Will is like, no, this is me. I am the six man. Right. And with that in mind, there can only be one choice. It's Weebay. Weebay is the six man of the year because nobody embraces murdering folks. The way that Weebay embraced. You don't embr- think Weebay's a starter? See, here's the thing, though. They trust Weebay with certain tasks, right? Is that Weebay, when it comes to putting in goon work, that's the only call that they make. They ain't giving Weebay any high-level instructions. Mm. They're not having him do anything other than what he does, and he's the best at it. He gets you buckets. He right. gets you murders. He gets you. He gets people taken care of. That's mm. what he does. Right. And he doesn't question any order. The most he might do is raise his eyebrow and then he'll check himself. Right. Like when Avon uh, told him to take all the phones out of out of his chick's uh, apartment or whatever. And he was like, all the phones. And then he and he Avon didn't even say anything. He just looked at OK. He's like, done. Yep. That's a six man. Mm. Never questioning what his 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 role and contribution. I see why you would say that. Right. Uh, Because he is. To their organization, he's he's definitely glue, but right. you know he's not Avon, he's not Stringer, he's not like some critical thinker 
So right. I try to think of how to for them to be legitimate. Like, hey, doing all that. We were like, mm. who, who do I need to kill? Okay. okay. All right. Word up. Right. What and it? then when it came time, uh, you know, for the charges, for some tater salad. He's like, I'll tell you for about some tater salad. Tater salad. Any better mm-hmm. you won't. That's a boss right there. <laughs> so right. many good moments with we babe. All right. Now on to and this this to me was just as tough as best when we're uh, doing the best quote, the best scene of the season. Like I, this one gave me the most hand wringing out of all the categories we've discussed is yeah. what was the best scene? The chess scene. All right. So if I make it to the other end, I win. If you catch the other dude's king and trap it, then you win. All right. But if I make it to the end, I'm top dog. Nah, yo, it ain't like that. Look, the pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. It's my favorite scene in the history of The Wire. I think it's the best scene in the history of the show. I think it's a, I, I really do. I think it's a, it's a breakdown of the way things go. It's one of the first, it's, it's, it's the way that they explain their world to everyone that's watching. Um, it, it's the way that they explain the, they, 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 they're they not, it's not heavy handed. It's just sublimely done. It's not heavy handed, but you know what they're talking about, right? They're giving it to you right there. That's your lesson. That's your indoctrination. That scene indoctrinates you, um, like we've been saying, uh, until, into the drug trade of West Baltimore. Yeah, and it, it, and it, it definitely is the best. You know, we talked about every episode, like what age is the best? I mean, from the first season, that might be number one. Yeah, so that is it for me. Don't have yeah. too much more to say about it. I just think it's one of the greatest scenes in television history. Uh, I'm going to go with Wallace's death scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was as difficult as it was to watch. And every single time, one of the reasons why I say it's the best scene is that it it doesn't get any easier for me to watch it the more times that I see it. And so much of what you just talked about with that chess scene is evident there about you have three young men who have converged and are in this place uh, where obviously they have been tasked with killing Wallace. And it's not just about betrayal and that's part of it or snitching or anything like that. Mostly they're all in this room together because so much of their lives have been decided for them that they were just caught up in the wrong circumstances, right? It's like Bodie, um, you know, his mother is a fiend and that's why he's in the life that he is. Wallace's mom is a is an alcoholic. You know, Poot has been on the street. Like, we don't know very much about Poot's backstory, but whatever it is, he was living with Wallace, which, which would tell you enough about it. You have Wallace whose uh, responsibility of taking care of these abandoned kids and trying to build a home and he's begging for his life. And in that moment, even though it, it, you know, even though that they were on this collision course, it just kind of really spoke to how the people we see make it out of those circumstances. We keep treating them like this is the rule of thumb when they are so much the exception. The, right. What generally happens is what happened in that room. On all sides. And so yeah. it, even though Wallace was the one who died, there are three lives lost in that room yeah. already. You know, for sure. For sure. So that that scene will always be tough to watch and it'll always be um, 
you know, as David Simon said himself, the whole point was to try to take away the heart so that people could understand the gravity of what was going on. And that definitely uh, accomplished that. All right. Another big category. Best performance. Mm. This is tough as well. To me, the actor that I'm most struck with every time they're on screen is Larry Gilliard as D'Angelo Barstow. I feel like he has the most drama to his character. Uh, he has the most drama to his character. His character has, it, every time they're putting him in the most dramatic situations, um, and over the course of these episodes, you see the greatest range um, out of his character. They kind of bounce the world off him a little bit and kind of give it back. On the police side of things, Dominic West as Jimmy McNulty is also a fantastic performance. And that's kind of the most fully formed performance to me of the cops. You see vulnerable Jimmy, you see horn dog Jimmy, you see uh, a remorseful Jimmy, you see all you know different different sides of him because they go a little bit deeper with him than they do with some of the other people. But I'd have to say uh, that one of the most criminally underrated performances um, in TV is uh, Larry Gilliard as D'Angelo Barstow. So uh, that was, I mean, this was a tough category because uh, my instinct was to go with McNulty initially, just because I agree with you, like the versatility that he shows and he is the engine driving a lot of this. You know, he's a he's a change agent, whether that be Mm -hmm. good change or bad change. That's what McNulty is like. He's combustible. And that's what and he's created this toxic character, Dominic West, that is really quite amazing to watch. It could be a good toxicity if there is such thing or a bad one. Um, But I felt like that was almost too easy. Mm. So. I started thinking a little bit broader and my choice would be Omar. And the Michael reason, yeah, yeah, I went with Omar because it's always about degree of difficulty for me and they making the decision to have a character who is, um, you know, on the wrong side of the law, but also a gay character in a very macho homophobic world. And yet almost, consistently when you ask people who their favorite character is, they almost Omar's either number one or number two. Yeah. He ain't far off. And for Michael K. Williams to achieve that with this character, to get us to buy into that, uh, you know, because we also have to remember the time. I mean, we're talking about early 2000s and I'm sure uh, across many of a Hollywood studio executive's desk, had you given them this series and said, oh, by the way, one of the bigger characters in the show is going to be um, a, a gay man who robs drug dealers. And by the by the way, never hid, you know, the, his gay, uh, him being gay was never insinuated. It was never mm-hmm. like, oh, he might be. It was in your face. Yeah. And so it's a revolutionary character from a representation standpoint, but just the way that he played it um, to make him fearsome, but also somebody who had a lot of heart, who had a cold, who had rules, yeah. who had integrity, despite the game that he's in. Uh, you know, to me, that was the best performance of the the whole season, which feels a little crazy because there's so many great performances in this. You almost feel like you're sliding the others. But that was the one that stood out to me above all else. Now, this next category, Van, you could sit out because I realized you we're not a participant in this category mm-hmm. through the entire season. Yeah. Right. And I know you didn't think I was going to let an episode go by without me 
for the 100th time and there will be 100 more times, if not 200 more times, where I have to point out the egregious ways, egregious ways in which Stringer Bell was absolutely a fuckboy. So I yeah. went through in every episode, with the exception of one, and that's only because he wasn't in the episode, I don't think, of pointing out all the fuckboy moments that he had in this season, which were <laughs> so many. Right. But despite the fact that, you know, he's farmers marketing and community colleging, <laughs> all right, I believe that alone. There was one clear fuckboy moment that is also a file this away for later moment. When he scoped out Donetta in episode two, <laughs> which was so classic, Stringer Bell fuckboyness, that it was just yeah. like, so let me get this straight. Right in front of D'Angelo, who you have no respect for whatsoever. Right. You not only say hello to his girl, you twirl her around and look at her ass right in front of her man's face. Yeah. You ain't shit, Stringer Bell. Yeah. That is the most, you, no, that is not the most. That's top three, because there's only two others that beat that, and it does involve Donetta. That is one of the most you ain't shitness moments this character had this whole series in History of the Wire. But in season one, that was the one where y'all should know that dude ain't shit. Can't defend him here. You can't? Uh, is it defensible? I remember when I first watched it, I was like, ah, string. A little flirting at the family reunion. But now nah, it's not because we know it's more. But nah, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a. And I'm then a they go off and get some food together. Yeah, it sounds like a little what? date. Um, but I'm a I'm a I'm gonna go ahead and and say, string. That was a fuckboy moment, bro. Not to I'm the glad homies, you see the man. Light. Not to the one time. Whoa. I'm not seeing no lights. One it gets time. Worse. You know right. it gets worse. <laughs> it gets a lot, a lot worse. All right, so mm-hmm. we've gone through the best performances, the best quotes. Um, before we get to our major category, um. There was, because we tended to go in this order on the show, and so that's the only reason why I have it sort of placed here, is I felt like we should give homage to the best trivia nugget of season one. For me, I thought it was definitely finding out Prez is the only cop in the wire to ever fire his gun. Um, That kind of blew me away, like, oh, shit, nobody else did fire their gun the entire series of The Wire. He was the only one. Yeah. Certainly blew my mind. Um, but I added a little bonus nugget. Okay. And, and it's really my fault because when we kind of discussed it, I should have brought it up then. It's about Orlando's, the gentleman's club that, you know, looks generally kind of terrible. But right. <laughs> so it was really, it really was a strip club in Baltimore. It was not called Orlando's. It was called the Ritz. And halfway through the season, the real owner of the strip club was charged with money laundering and went to jail. <laughs> Yes. Around episode five or six. Whoa! The real owner. Off. Feds busted him. And as part of what happened, the feds actually took over ownership of the Ritz, a.k.a. Orlando's. And so The Wire had to have the feds as their landlords to finish the season. Oh, that's amazing. No, that's that right there, there is by far... Because that's art imitating life right there. Isn't it? I was like, like wow. that, That's by far the best nugget. No, for, for sure, man. For certain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yeah. That was it. I thought I'd throw in a bonus one for you. All right. Now, finally, the category we know you all have been waiting for. As you recall, we ended every episode by talking about who won the episode. So it's not about who won the season. Let's make it bigger than that. Who was the MVP of season one? 
MVP of season one is Lester Freeman. Kawhi Leonard? Kawhi Leonard. Lester Freeman. Now, when I say MVP, I'm not talking about the biggest star on the team. I'm talking about the most valuable player in season one of The Wire is Lester. Lester is the one that the, the team, they, they, like, they tried to build the team around McNulty, right? That's what they tried to do in the show. They built the team around McNulty. He's got a lot of the heavy lifting. He does a lot of that, right? But the guy that emerged that ended up uh, really putting cases on people um, and sitting in the Pelican Bay shoe program, training day style, was Lester Freeman. Didn't have as much screen time, but every single time he was on screen, he sparkled, he delivered, he had a, an amazing character arc, fantastically played, um, understated when he needed to be, kind of bucked up when he needed to be. Um, for me, when I look back at it, I think the MVP of season one is by far Lester Freeman. So easy choice would be to say maybe McNulty, right? right. Because it, let's be real. None of this starts unless McNulty is on one. And even Lester. We don't get Lester unless McNulty decides to get on one. Totally uh, ignores chain of command, goes to a judge. We know the chain of events that happened there. But I don't think it was McNulty. I actually think the MVP, and this is, Admittedly, a controversial choice. I may look back on this like some people look back at Steve Nash winning two. I don't know. Ah, disgusting. Right? <laughs> right? Or how Kobe only has one. And then they're looking right. at Steve, McNa- Steve Nash, excuse me, right. um, like what? Or Shaq, you know, only having one. That being said, MVP is about narrative. It's about growth. It's about delivering when it matters. And... Cedric Daniels, to me, was the MVP of season one. Because he got, look at what he inherited. It's about narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the team he got. He made all his teammates better. All Mm -hmm. of them. Even McNulty, even Freeman, made them all better, right? He didn't even know he unearthed Prez Belusky, right? Who was totally worthless. Unearthed him. When you you look at the team he got, you look at how they progressed throughout the season, no question. And mm-hmm. even in his own growth, even his own growth, he started as a company man just trying to survive, just get a bust or two, and lay this thing to bed. But even he knew at the beginning that wasn't quite the way this thing was supposed to play. Yeah. He might have started off the season slow, but by the end, he was going for 30 every night, yep. especially when he told uh, Burrell, like Purell. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Burrell. Actually, when he told him, if you want to do me, I'd already be done. Right. Do what you want to do. Yeah. Okay. Right. So what? That, <laughs> right? That's an MVP moment. That's man. an MVP moment. Right. That's him hitting the, the the shot in the finals like Kyrie did. That's mm-hmm. him. Yeah. He did that. He delivered every time. Got his dudes out of trouble, even though they wasn't shit. He was like, okay. Yeah. You can't rebound, you can't shoot, but tell you what, you can still be on the team, Hurt. I'm with you. That's a good choice. I wouldn't yeah, have thought about like, Daniels. It's, it's, that he got a woman that don't support him being a rebel, trying to disrupt the system. Mm-hmm. He he rising in spite of. Yeah, I'm with it. I'm with that. It's, That's a good choice. Yeah. yeah, it's all about Daniels. Um, Well, that is going to 
do it for all of our awards here. Um, you know, uh, it's been a fantastic first season. I agree wholeheartedly with Van. Best first season in television history. Best ever. EVA Best. ever. Don't add us. Don't debate us. Or you can't debate us, but, uh, you know, we don't care. Oh, you know who else Daniels reminded me of real quick? Who? Nick Fury. That's who he reminded Ooh. me of. Nick Fury. Look, the Avengers are all great in their own right, but they needed a leader. They needed somebody right. to bring them together. To bring them together, to give them what Nick Fury calls that push. That push. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. He was forever doing uh, like uh, what Nick Fury did in the Avengers when he lied about um, the the secret agent that had been killed. Yeah. And he lied about him having the Captain America. <laughs> Coulson, yeah. Coulson. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's, some, that's some Cedric Daniels shit. That's some yeah. Nick Fury shit. The Nick Fury of the wire, Cedric Daniels. I like it's Cedric that. Daniels. Yeah. There you go. Um, but anyway, that's going to do it for our wrap up of season one. We're starting season two next. Yeah. This is a controversial van. You know how people feel about season two. Yeah. Dumb. It's dumb yeah. if you feel that way, but that's okay. It is. And I, yeah. I will say this now on, on this podcast before we start season two. If you don't like season two of The Wire, you're not a real Wire fan. Not a real not Wire a real, fan. You're not a real Wire fan if you don't like season two. Nope. So just keep mm -hmm. that in mind. Ready um, for it. Yes. So we'll be back with a complete breakdown of season two, starting with episode one. Thanks for listening to us and keep watching The Wire. Peace.